1: it's good to see all of you here on this uh, chilly uh, fall morning. Uh, it's good to welcome those of you who are joining us online. And just know that whether you're live in person, live online, watching or listening later throughout the week, uh, you were prayed for, cared for, and loved before you showed up or before you turned on the screen. Uh, as Michelle mentioned, we are in a series called The Armor of God. And so uh, today we're going to be talking about the belt of truth. And so in order to introduce this topic, some of you um, I've had the opportunity of knowing for years. Some of you we've not yet met or we're just meeting now. and so. Uh, One great way that we know to get to know someone is to play a game called Two Truths and a Lie. And I'll start that off with myself because we don't have time for everybody. But what I do promise is that um, this will be the only time I knowingly and intentionally lie to you here... (laughs) So it's not, I just want to preface that, right? Like you're just talking a truth sermon about lying, but there's a reason for it. So here, here are three pictures that represent, I'm just doing like a food version of Two Truths and a Lie uh, because there's just a lot of other ways we could go, and this is a simple one. So first, this is what's called a Mopani worm that can be found in Zimbabwe. Two Truths and a Lie. I ate a Mopani worm when I visited Zimbabwe several years ago. House salad. Two truths and a lie. The first time I ever had a house salad was when I was going to Steph's house for dinner when I was 17 years old. Banana. The first time I had a banana was when I was 16 years old. Two truths and a lie. How many of you believe that the Mopani worm is the lie? Okay. A couple of you. Great. How many of you believe that the salad is the lie? We're enjoying this already. I love it. How many of you believe that the banana is the lie? Friends, here's here's where I was lying. All of these are actually true. I didn't have my first banana until I was 16 years old. I had my first salad when I went to Steph's house for dinner when we were both in high school. And if you know, my girlfriend's parents are making me food. I'm eating it. And so I ate the salad for the very first time. And then I actually have a couple pictures of the Mopani worm Uh, in 2000. It was deep fried. It was at a restaurant near Victoria Falls called the Boma. Uh, It has incredible food, but they have a challenge where you can eat a Mopani worm that is deep fried. So this is me looking at it. This is me reevaluating my life choices. (laughs) And this is me trying to... uh, trying to look good in front of my uh, team members and not be the only one who didn't do it. So uh, it's one of those where that was the, here's the whole premise of two truths and a lie. The whole premise that you are coming into when you are knowing that you're engaging in a game like this is that there's going to be something that's a lie. And yet what I just did was deceptive in saying that they were actually all true and that the only lie was that there was a lie. Now, as we enter into our sermon today, I recognize that doing something deceptive and then equating or talking about the fact that the devil is deceptive might put me in a weird company, but the idea sets us the stage for this, that there are so many things that seem true that aren't, and it's the, the things we have to be most careful about when it comes to, to standing firm for truth is the idea that we talked about last week, the full frontal attack on truth that's easy to turn around and that's easy to dissuade. If someone were to say, hey, you know what? It is absolutely true that it is sunny out, 90 degrees out, and then it's 7 p.m. We're like, all of those things are clearly not accurate. It's the little things. It's the, the little ways that the enemy doesn't outright lie, but the ways that he deceives us with things that sound true and sound good, and yet sometimes all it takes is letting down our guard to backing up a little bit instead of standing firm and to allowing and to do the, take the steps of allowing half-truths or deceptions to determine our worldview and our walk with Jesus. And so if you'll join me in a word of prayer, we're going to ask a few questions today. We're going to talk about what is truth. We're going to talk about what it is that, um, how it is that, or why is a belt of truth. Why does Paul refer to it as a belt? We're going to ask the question, of how does Satan attack truth? How does he try to wage war on truth? And lastly, we're going to ask, what does it look like for us to put on the belt of truth? So with all of that in mind, um, let's go ahead and pray. And if you want, uh, maybe I should ask for a prayer, a small prayer of forgiveness for lying to you all, but we'll, uh, we'll go ahead and enter into this time we have together. Heavenly Father, I thank you for each person who's part of our service today, whether live in person, live online, watching or listening later throughout the week. Lord, and I pray that each person who hears my voice knows the truth of the fact that they are deeply loved by you. I pray that we, none of us, would fall into the deception that we have to earn your love or that it's something where um, we have to compete and compare, but rather we can receive and believe that you love us. Lord, I pray that as we dive in that you would that I would decrease, that you would increase, that you would speak in a personal, powerful, impactful way to each and every one of us, Lord. I thank you for each person who hears my voice because they're deeply loved by you. And I believe that each person who hears my voice that is part of this sermon is exactly who you want to hear at exactly the right time you want them to hear it. So may we have open eyes, ears, and hearts to receive what you have for us. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 4 for the majority of our sermon, and it'll take us a couple minutes to get there, but we'll Ephesians chapter 4, starting in verse 14. But before we get there, we're going to ask a question that uh, could have a very convoluted, a very um, wide-ranging answer, Uh, but we're going to start it off, and we're going to try to simplify what it can be a complex question. The first question that we're going to ask here is, what is truth? We see this question all the way back, even with Pontius Pilate, when he's talking to Jesus the day that Jesus is going to be crucified, and even then, Pontius Pilate's like, what is truth? And that question has reverberated and echoed throughout time, because we have this idea that truth is, again, this concept of of things are relative, the idea that there's subjective truth, that this is true for me, and yet we start to believe that there's my truth and your truth. And so, you know, you can do whatever you want and I'll do whatever I want as long as we don't impede upon each other because we all can have our own truth. And yet, if truth, if all truth was subjective and if that's really the way it was meant to be, then we would run into all sorts of errors because what if I don't think that robbing you is wrong, but you think that being robbed is wrong? Then I could just say, well, it's my, you know, my truth is that it's okay to do this. And you say, well, my truth doesn't. So where do we go so that truth is not a subjective terminology, but that truth is objective? Pastor Tony Evans puts it this way. He says, truth is an objective standard by which reality is measured. It's not subjective. It's not like I get to pick that there are really eight days a week. I don't get to pick that there's 27 hours in a day, right? There's objective truth by which reality is measured. It is not predicated on how you feel or what you think about it. Feelings are real, right? Our thoughts are real. So I'm not dismissing that we have feelings. It's just there comes a time in all of our lives when what we feel has to be put through the lens of objective truth. And if objective truth shows us that what we feel isn't valid or isn't true, we need to submit to that rather than asking objective truth to submit to our feelings. Truth is that to which all things must conform. This past week, we had an opportunity to go to um, our girls. Uh, and they have an assembly midweek. And while we were there, um, it was in the late afternoon, and I noticed that there was a clock that was hanging uh, inside like the, the, the courtyard area, but it wasn't correct. So let's go ahead and show this picture here. So you can see that the, picture, the clock says it was 12.36 p.m., and my, wa- my phone was 2.37 p.m., so you could say, okay, well, the, hour, the, the minute's close, but the hour's a couple hours off. Now, could you imagine? Like, I, I have my phone here. This is what I use to tell the time when we're looking at uh, if the power goes out or if there's anything and I need to check the time. I don't guess what time it is. I look at something that is objective. I go and I see, okay, this is the time that it says, and I allocate my watch or my clock to the objective time. And so... Tony Evans uses this example because he's talking about the idea that we have to submit to something that is objectively true. Could you imagine that if my watch here, uh, if I set it for two hours behind, two hours and one minute behind everywhere I went, and could you imagine that if I showed up and we're supposed to have a lunch meeting and it was at noon and I show up at two, you say, well, why were you late? I'm like, well, I wasn't late according to my time. I wasn't late according to my truth. Look, my time says that I'm here on time. What would it look like if, at your employer, you showed up two hours late, and you would say, well, "Why are you late again?" No, I'm not, no, my my time says that I'm here on time. We cannot look at something subjective and make the objective truth be submissive to us. Instead, what we look at is we say, "What is truth?" And truth has to be an objective outside of my feelings, outside of my thoughts, outside of my own perspective. It has to be something that is objectively true. Priscilla Shire shortens this or or simplifies this even more. What is truth? Truth is God's opinion on any matter. It is the objective standard you and I can always rely on. There are times when we read God's word and we read about what it says is true or not true. And there's times where I feel uncomfortable with the fact that, like, oh man, like that is a a big standard for me to recognize that God's truth is truth. But I don't say, well, God, I just like this part of your word and not that part. I'm going to cut off the parts about sin because that's uncomfortable. Like it's acknowledging that truth, God's word is true. It is objectively true. Even if I don't want it to be, even if there's times, not that I don't want it to be, even if there's times where it causes tension is a better way to say that. It may cause tension to sometimes think, wait, I have to submit to what God says. And the absolute truth is yes. I don't get to walk through life with a watch that's two hours slow. And I don't get to walk through life thinking that I can dictate what parts of God's word are true. It's that God's worth is truth, and truth is God's standard. It is God's opinion on a matter, not my own, not my thoughts, not my feelings. It is what does God say through his inspired word. Because if I decide to walk around way thinking that what I think is matter, and that it's maybe my truth is objective, and it's God's truth is subjective, then it opens the door for deception to then creep in, and it opens the door for me to not stand firm, but to slowly backtrack, to slowly step back, and to then l- realize how much ground we've lost because we've not stood firm. So we look at this idea that what is it? We talked about this last week. We kind of showed this list that me and Warren Wearsby we worked on together. He just isn't aware of it. But recognizing the enemy's schemes based on, partially based on what to wear to the war, um, a book of his. And we talked about how the first one is deception. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 14, we continue this theme when we see this. Let's go to the screen here. It says this. He gives the context of talking about the maturity of believers, how there has to be unity and maturity in the body of Christ. And as the body of Christ is growing, then, he says, we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves. This idea of being tossed back and forth, uh, the Greek word can also be this idea of if the spinning of a top and how you're just so discombobulated that you can't say that up is up or down is down or anything. You're just so uh, thrown off that you can't tell right or wrong untruth truth or untruth. This idea of being blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. This idea of scheming The same word that we talked about last week, the enemy schemes, the same word that comes from this idea of the methods in the Greek to to say, this is how the enemy schemes against us. I thought, I think it's interesting, you probably may not enjoy it as much as I do, but the word cunning is actually originally used for dice throwing, and the idea was implied that dice throwing was so crooked back then that it was a weighted dice or that it wouldn't be a, a valid way or a viable actual bet that it was then got to be used for any sort of trickery, any sort of underhandedness comes from this word of cunning and and dice throwing. So the idea is this. We have to be so firm in what truth is because there will be cunning words that sound good. Yeah, God does want me to be happy. You're right. But God doesn't say, I'm just here for your, your momentary happiness. He's come here so that you can have holiness, and I'm here that you can experience true happiness or blessedness that Jesus talks about in in Matthew 5, looking at the Beatitudes. He doesn't, it's not one of those where it sounds good, but all it takes is for us to step away from truth just one degree or two degrees. Not the full frontal assault on truth, but just enough for us to say, oh, well, that's not what God really says oh, that's not what he really meant when he said what he said. Oh, that was something that was written for thousands of years ago, but now we've, we've progressed. We're, we're better now. And so God's truth does not change because God does not change. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so we have the responsibility to find out if God's truth is objective, How do we come alongside and recognize that while there are deceptions, and go to the next slide, we know that deception is one of the enemy's primary schemes, and so we need to combat that with truth. And we're going to use this slide throughout the series, looking at the different pieces of the armor of God and how it combats the various different ways the enemy likes to scheme against us. We continue on in your Bibles, Ephesians 4, looking through 15 and 16, says this. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. From him the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. Notice the importance of truth in the maturity and the unity and the growth of God's church. That we speak the truth in love. In fact, the Greek for this is is they make a truth into a um, a noun, or excuse me, to a verb. And so an equivalent would be like truthing in love, which we wouldn't use it that way, but it's this idea of speaking truth. But in order to speak truth, you have to also live it. So if you speak one thing and do something else with that duplicitous nature, that lack of integrity, it's not going to be perpetuating the unity, maturity, and growth of the church because we will be duplicitous or we will be double-minded. And so it's speaking the truth in love. There's deception and deceitful schemes. And we combat that by speaking the truth in love to one another, holding one another accountable, encouraging and challenging one another to make sure that our worldview is the perspective that God's truth is truth. And whenever that creates tension, because we know it will, but whenever it creates tension, we don't try to force God into our box, We recognize that we submit to his word. So, what is truth? It is God's opinion on any matter. Why does Paul refer to truth as a belt? Or should be why, I apologize. Why does Paul refer to truth as a belt? Let's go back to Ephesians 6, and it says this way, in the NIV version, which is the one that we most typically use here. It says, stand firm then with a belt of truth buckled around your waist. And so when we hear that, we initially, okay, we take the belt, and it's, you know, we buckle it up, and it's all ready to go. Um, and we think, okay, that's, that's what it means. But the Greek here, again, there's just some nuances in the language that it's helpful to maybe unpack a little bit. The NASB does a little bit of a better job giving us the original idea. It's not belt, buckle the belt of truth. It's stand firm there, having belted your waist with truth. Now the word belt in the Greek is not what we think of as belt. The word belt is this idea of it's it's girding the loins, it's protecting this area of. Your body. And so, having belted your waist, it's a verb again. It's saying, having girded your loins, which is not what we use this verbiage anymore, but that paints the picture that it was not just a belt that you put on just to make sure that your pants don't sag too much or a belt that you put on just to, just to accentuate what it is that you're wearing because the colors match and you, wanna, you want it to be able to look put together. It's acknowledging that this is something that we have to gird our loins. A Roman soldier had to protect himself with truth, or excuse me, with the belt, and then we have to do the same thing with truth. Uh, We see here from Marvin Vincent, he says this, the girdle, so we're going to use that verbiage, gird your loins, the girdle that Paul was speaking of here was worn by Roman soldiers. It was not simply a strip of cloth around his waist or even a narrow belt. Instead, it was generally a leather apron that helped to protect the lower part of the body. The girdle was also used as a sheath for the soldier's sword. So we know the word is of God is the sword of the spirit. We'll see that in a couple of verses and we'll study that in several weeks. So remember this truth and God's word are one and the same. They are part of the same thing because it is hanging around truth that we recognize that God's word is how we can objectively it's the objective standard to which we can live our lives. So this isn't a perfect example but this this will be an image of what it would look like that there'd be a sword on one side you might have a dagger or a scabbard on one side and that you'd be able to have some protection with some bronze protection here in order to gird your loins. Now, in order to gird your loins, the reason they would do this Is because men and women, but they would wear tunics, right? And so it would look more just like one flowing uh, piece of garment there. And so when you put the belt on, when a soldier would put the belt on, it showed that they were ready for action. It showed that they were ready for whatever may come. Because if we think about it, like we might think that there's this idea of being free is when you don't have any restrictions, We might think, as the world says, being free means no one can tell you what to do. Life can just flow. You can do whatever it is that you want, when you want, how you want it. But there's two types of freedoms that Charles Kingsley talks about. He says one freedom is the freedom to do what we like, and the other is the freedom to do what we ought. And the latter is the freedom that we ought to live for. It's not the idea of, oh, I can just do whatever I want, when I want, how I want. It's that I will restrict myself. I will not allow myself to go about the deceptive schemes and to fall into deceptions around me, but I will protect myself by guarding and girding myself with truth each and every day. That even when a Roman soldier wasn't on the battlefront, or even if a Roman soldier was just walking around a city during peacetime, they would still have the belt of truth. They would have girded themselves. They would still have that Roman belt. And so for us as christ followers we need to have whether we're in a season of a battle or not whether it's a difficult season or not or somewhere in between we need to have truth wrapped around us so that we are ready for the battle that at a moment's notice if a soldier didn't have the belt on it would be hard to run in battle someone could grab the tunic and hurt them they need to have it all put together in order to be ready whatever may come so Paul doesn't say put on the belt of truth. He says, having girded your loins, having having protected yourself with truth, stand firm. Third question: How does Satan wage war on truth? Friends, this could be a whole sermon. This could be a whole series. There is so many. There are so many things here. But for the sake of our purposes this morning, we're going to highlight and reiterate how and why the enemy likes to deceive. Priscilla Shire says it this way. She says, the overarching principle present in all of Satan's attacks towards us is deception. Again, it's not, all, it's not that full frontal lie that we know not to be true so we could stand firm. It's that half truth, that deception that seems like it could be true enough That instead of revisiting what God's word says as the objective standard of truth, instead of looking at that, we say, oh, that sounds good. I'm going to start adhering to that thought process or that mindset. So we talked about this again last week. When the enemy got Adam and Eve to sin in the garden, he asked a question. And sometimes when someone asks a question that undermines who God is and what he says, Sometimes that's more effective than a full frontal assault. And so instead of Satan just saying, do you know that God is mean or awful or a bully? Adam and Eve, if they heard that, they'd have been like, no, God is good. Look at at what he's created. Look, we get to be in the garden. We get to be able to till the land. We get to be fruitful and multiply. No, no, God is good. Get out of here, Satan. You don't make any sense. So he doesn't give a full frontal assault on God's character. He said, did God, did he? Did he really say that you can't eat out of any tree? That's not at all what he said. But sometimes a question can open the door for deception, and that deception opens the door for us to fall. So much easier than just a straightforward, full frontal attack. Recently, I was reading to a group of kids the story um, Aesop's fable of uh, a wolf in sheep's clothing. If you're familiar with it, there's a, a picture here that I don't think Aesop drew, but it just gives us an idea. Um, the idea that there was once a wolf who wanted to be able to eat the sheep of a flock. And as he was trying to attack the sheep, the sheep would get afraid. And the wolf was no longer able to get close enough in order to attack the sheep and be able to take the sheep for himself. And so one day after a, the shearing season of, of wool, he finds the, the wolf finds a pelt or he finds the lamb's wool that is lying around. And so he says, if I can put on this lamb's clothing, or if I could look like the lamb, I'll be able to be entered into the flock as well. And I'll be able to have my fill of lamb chops. And so he puts this on. And you could see from afar, if you were looking at all of this, you know, from the back, you probably look very much like a sheep. The story goes, though, as Aesop continues, he says that that same day, the shepherd, was really hungry for mutton soup. He wanted to be able to eat uh, mutton's lamb. I'm just learning these things, too, because remember, I didn't have a banana until I was 16, so I'm learning food. But he decides, I want to get the biggest and the the meatiest lamb for me to have my soup today. And the wolf was slaughtered. And he didn't get lamb chops. He got whatever else, the wolf, you know, just gamey wolf meat. But here's the thing. The deception was put on so that the wolf could be able to attack the sheep. And the idea comes that there will be people in and around us, people that we know, we care about, that we can look from afar. And even up close, they have similarities to people who are teaching the truth. But Jesus points us to this. We talked about it just a few months ago. He points us to the danger of this. Very early on in his teaching, the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew seven verse fifteen, he says this: Watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. Friends, the majority of the New Testament books, the the letters, the Gospels, Acts, Revelation, the majority of the books that we have in our in our New Testament, excuse me, specifically carve out time warning against false doctrine and false teachers. They take time to say, look out for ferocious wolves like this. They take time to say, Hey, there are false teachers among you who wish to tear you down. There is false doctrine that if anyone preaches a doctrine other than the gospel of Jesus, you need to excommunicate. You need to get rid of them. You need to be aware of that because the sanctity of truth has to be so solid that we don't allow false teachers, false doctrine to come in so that we get to the point where we think, well, maybe this isn't as bad as I thought it was. Maybe God's word is antiquated and maybe it's just for back then, but now we've progressed and now we don't need to do that anymore. Maybe we, we think that, you know, any, any gap, we think we're moving forward. But the enemy sees us, that we're not, no longer standing firm, and we're definitely not moving forward. We are retreating backward. So it's recognizing that throughout the New Testament, it warns false doctrine, false teachers. Look out for those who are like wolves in sheep's clothing. Look out for those who deceive. So we let them in. And then they wreak havoc in our lives and the lives of those we love. So how is it that Satan deceives? What does it look like? We continue on here. We want to see the effects of what happens to a group of people when they are deceived by these schemes. So let's go ahead and go to the next slide, starting in verse 17. So I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they've given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity, and they are full of greed. Friends, if you want a 2,000-year-old picture written 2,000 years ago of our current culture today, Ephesians 4, 17 through 19 would be a pretty good option. Recognizing that the deception allows for the thinking of our culture, and if we're not careful, ourselves as well, to be darkened, that we no longer see or acknowledge light. Like when you go to a movie theater, and back in the olden days when they would have you exit like out the back instead of like going back through uh, the main lobby. But you go out the back, you've been in a movie theater for hours, and you open up the door, and the light is so blinding. That there are some of us that, and some people that we know and love that will walk through life living in darkness, and they'll have an experience of the gospel. They'll have an experience of the truth, but it's so blinding and uncomfortable that it would be so much easier to close the door and to stay in a darkened mind. The deception has darkened us. It's created ignorance because if we're not able to receive the light because our minds have been darkened, then we're not aware that that we don't know what we don't know. And so there's this idea of ignorance. We ignore, we're unclear about the importance of God's truth in our lives. We're unclear and we ignore the importance of recognizing that we ought to just—we ought to know the truth because the truth will set us free, but also that we have to live out that truth. We have to truth in love with one another. We recognize that if we keep ourselves in darkness, if we stay ignorant, then we become hardened in our hearts. How many of us, whether people that you know and love or maybe we've seen uh, just in the culture in general that you talk about things of faith And it's just automatically shut down and looked down upon. And we think, gosh, there's, you know, we might think things like, they're so hateful or, you know, how come they don't understand? Well, they don't understand because they've been darkened. Their minds have been darkened, that there's an ignorance there. And this is not to downplay, and this is not even if you're in this room or you're watching online and you're not there yet, I'm not belittling because this is what we've surrounded, been surrounded with in our culture This is the normal way. This is the wide road. And so for us to follow Christ is the narrow gate. It is the the road that is more difficult for us to navigate together. That's why we have to hold fast to truth. Because when the whole world is going downstream and we're trying to be salmon going upstream, it's not going to be easy. And so it's not going to be something that goes with the flow. The flow says the freedom that you can do what you like is uh, you've arrived. And we believe it's the freedom to do what we ought to do, following Christ, loving God, loving others, sharing the gospel, being a witness, and pouring into those around us so they too can know the hope that we have in Him. And so there's the hardening of the heart. And then they give in. In our sinfulness, before I knew Jesus, I gave in to so many things, right? Many of you who had that experience can say the same giving in to different, different types of impurity, living with greed. The fruit of impurity, greed, all those different sensuality, all those things that it talks about, that's the fruit of having having the seeds of deception sown in the soil of our lives. So instead of just behavior modification, someone coming to know Jesus or or wanting to find out about Jesus, say, hey, just stop doing bad things. It's saying, let's start believing the right things. Because if you uproot the root of deception and you plant the seeds of God's truth, then it will have a growth that is, as Jesus says in Mark 4, it's, it's 10 or 30 or it's 60 or 100 times the good soil is able to bear. So in the last few minutes we have together, we've asked questions what is truth. It's God's opinion on a matter that we see through his word as an objective standard to which we live our lives. We've asked the question, why is it about a belt? Well, it's more about girding our loins, about protecting ourselves. It's about the thing that, through which the word of God hangs. And we'll also see a little bit next week that the belt of truth helps support the breastplate of righteousness. So the righteousness, truth, and God's word all have an interplay that we might have missed if we weren't aware. We talk about the idea that the enemy loves to deceive. That's the main route. And if he could deceive, then our hearts and our minds can be darkened. We could be ignorant of that which takes us far from him. We could think we're good enough on our own. We could get to a point where our hearts are hardened to the fact that we have sin. And if our hearts are hardened to the fact that we have sin, we are less likely to ever confess that sin. And if we're less likely to think that we have sin and we won't confess that sin, then we're less likely to humble ourselves enough to surrender our lives to Jesus. Because so we'll think, I'm good enough on my own. I'm not a bad person. I'm certainly better than that person. But that's because if we look at a subjective standard, I'm better than that person, I might be fine. But we have God's objective standard, that there are none that are righteous, no, not one. That the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. That we confess with our mouths and believe in our hearts that we are saved, that we are able to experience life when we recognize our own depravity, not when we try to put up the deception that we have it all together. So the final question we're going to take together in the last few minutes we have remaining is how do we put on the belt of truth? How do we gird our loins, if we're going to use the former verbiage there, how do we put on the belt of truth? And we see this again in Ephesians 4, verse 20. It says, That, however, remember, what's the that, however? It's referring to the way of the world and the Gentiles in verses 17 through 19. So Paul is continuing his his explanation of saying, that's how the world is, but that, however, is no longer how you ought to be. He says, that, however, is not the way of life you learned when you heard about Christ and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is Jesus. I read something... uh, in one of the commentaries, that Paul will often refer to Jesus as Christ um, in, in a lot of his sections. But when he's talking about the idea of the specific life, death, and resurrection, the person of Jesus Christ, he'll often refer to him as Jesus rather than the title of Christ as the Anointed One. Because remember, Jesus Christ is not a first and last name. It is a name and it is a title. It is Jesus, which means Yahweh brings salvation, the Anointed One, the Christ, the Messiah, And so he's saying, you learned the truth that is in Jesus. And it's not just that he lived and he died. It's that he is the way and the truth and the life. And as Jesus says in John 8, 32, I am the truth and the truth will set you free. Again, free not to do what you want, but free to do what we ought. And it's recognized that he is the truth. And we sang earlier that new song, Abide, when it talks about Jesus. You are the truth. Let me abide in you. And so how do we put on the belt of truth? Let's ask that question. And we're going to do a quick glance at verses 22 through 24. uh, And we're going to read it and highlight um, different parts of how we can do this. The first thing that we could do to put on the belt of truth is that we need to get rid of the old self. Get rid of the old self Go ahead and go to the next slide. We see here in verse 22, you were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, to get rid of it, to put it off. Imagine going to the beach, and when you go to the beach and you're all sandy and it's gross, and you're there and you enjoy it for a little while, and then you think, man, this is a lot of work, and I still like I still have the sunscreen residue. Maybe this is just me, but you're like, okay, it's sunscreeny and sandy and all these things, and you say, okay, you know what I look forward to in those moments? Being able to take a shot, to get off the old clothes and to be cleaned. And so it's saying, put off your old self. The ways it used to be, the ways in verses 17 through 19 that you say, oh yeah, no, I used to give in to those things. I used to fall into greed. I used to have sensuality that I would give in to those lusts. I used to think those things, speak those ways and do those things. Put that off like it's a dirty clothes that you do not want to see again. And be cleansed and recognize you are a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. Number two, what do we do? Not just get rid of your old self, but identify deceitful desires. Identify those things in your life that sound good, but are actually deceitful. That would open up the door for deception to to wiggle its way in for the enemy to get a foothold in your life. We see it here when it goes to the next verse which is being corrupted, your old self, is being corrupted by its deceitful desires. We are corrupted by the things that sound good around us. And the only way that we can know what is right and wrong and true or false is going back to God's word, the objective truth that is in this word, not how I feel about something, but recognizing that no matter what I feel about something, God's truth supersedes my truth. Because my truth is subjective, but his is objective. That never changes. So identify deceitful desires. C.H. Spurgeon talks about this here, the idea of discernment, of going to God's word, discerning the spirits, and seeing what's right and wrong through God's lens. He says, discernment is not knowing the difference between right and wrong. Again, that's a a blatant truth and lie that we could be able to navigate pretty easily. Discernment is knowing the difference between right and almost right. Because all it takes is for us to be almost right and to get everything wrong. How do we put on the belt of truth? Number one, we get rid of our old self. Number two, we identify deceitful desires. Then we have to renew our mind. Renew your mind. We know that Romans 12 talks about the, the renewing of our mind so that we can understand God's pleasing and perfect and goodwill. We have to renew not just our emotions, but our mind. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Following Jesus is not this um, mindless activity. We're not drones that are just going up about. It's like we have to stand firm in truth because the world likes to attack truth. And we need to make sure that we are lined up side by side, shoulder to shoulder with other people who follow Jesus to stand firm for truth. And remember, truth has to be done in love. That we can't truth someone so much without loving them because then we're not really showing them truth. We also can't love people to the point where we're not showing them truth because that's not actually love. It's, it's both and, it's not either or. You can't say, well, I'm a truth Christian and I'm a love Christian. That would be a nonsensical conversation. We are followers of Christ who speak the truth in love. Just like Jesus said, Go and sin no more, yet neither do I condemn you. It's not either or, friends. It's both and. Renew your mind. Here's how Paul says in Ephesians 4, that we must be made new in the attitude of your minds. When our minds start to wander, we need to hold our thoughts captive, make our thoughts captive to Christ. When our mind starts to think that maybe deceptive strategies or deceptive schemes are sound good, let's go to God's word, not go to Google, not go to a friend who doesn't know Jesus. Find wise counsel, find God's word and say, is this, am I hearing this correctly? Because if not, I want to be set back on the right path. I don't want to go off and follow something that's almost right. Because I recognize that all it takes is for us to believe something's almost right for us to get everything wrong. Life Application Study Bible quotes it this way. Satan fights with lies, and sometimes his lies sound like truth. But only believers have God's truth, which can defeat Satan's lies. We have to be so well versed in the word of God, which is the sword of the spirit that hangs on the truth of the armor of of the belt of truth. We have to know it so well that we can spot out deceptions at a moment's notice. And lastly, we need to make sure that we dress the part. We need to dress the part go to the last one here, the last slide. To be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. If I were to go back and come back from the beach, I get off all the sandy clothes, and I get a shower, and I feel clean, how ridiculous would it be for me to say, you know what I want to wear right now? The sunscreeny sandy clothes. And I put it back on, and even though I'm clean, I now am feeling that that griminess, that dirtiness again? Why would we go back to the old self when we become a new creation? You know what would be ridiculous is the idea that when it says that um, the old is gone, the new has come, it's a metamorphosis Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians 5, and he talks about how this idea of the metamorphosis is what we think of going from a caterpillar into a chrysalis into a butterfly. Imagine a butterfly who's been set free and can fly. It's like, hey, I really want to go back to my chrysalis in my cave. I really want to go back to crawling on the ground. I wish someone would cut off my wings so that I can just crawl like I used to. So no, no, put on the new self. Be a new creation. Don't just be a better version of the old creation. Dress the part. Put on the new self. When we see this here, how do we put on the belt of truth? We've been using this word about how GERD is kind of a uh, a weird word that we don't use very often anymore. But if you go back to our list, We have to gird our loins. G, get rid of the old self. I, identify the deceitful desires. R, renew your mind. And D, dress the part. Gird ourselves. Why? So that we can stand firm. A. Skevington Wood puts it this way. The belt tied tightly around the waist indicated that the soldier was prepared for action. To slacken the belt was to go off duty. I don't know about you, but when I get home, um, and whether it's a long day or whatever it looks like, one of the first things I want to do is I want to get into, like, athletic shorts and, like, a tank top. Like, I just, I don't want, like, anything that's uncomfortably tight. I don't want anything that's, I would just, just want to be off duty. I want to relax. And so it's saying, listen, if, when we take off the belt, a Roman soldier would take off the belt means I'm off duty. I'm going to go home now, or I'm going to go do this, whatever I want to. So if we need to gird ourselves, it means that we're on duty. We're on call. We need to be ready at a moment's notice to stand firm for truth. We need to be prepared in season and out of season to give a reason for the hope that we have in Christ. Marvin Vincent continues on this idea. He says, here was the the point of junction for the main pieces of the armor. What he means is the belt of truth was the main point of junction between the different pieces so that the girdle, Forms the common bond of the whole. Truth gives unity to the different virtues and, de- and the determinateness and consistency to character. All the virtues are exercised within the sphere of truth. A soldier wouldn't put the helmet on, grab the, the um, sword and grab the shield and go off to war. The first thing would be to put on the truth or put on belt. The first thing for us is to make sure truth is wrapped around the very core of our being to make sure that truth is the objective God's objective standard for which we live our lives and we need to put on that girdle so that we are ready not if but when the battle's come so we'll close with this question in one more picture do you guys know the difference we're coming up you know Halloween's not super close but you know 6 7 weeks away do you know the difference between a costume and a uniform costume is something that you wear when you're just dressing up trying to look like something a couple of years ago, the girls were uh, reading a book series called The Green Ember, which is about bunnies with swords, and it's a, it's a great story um, written by a Christian author with some great themes, and Shaylin wanted to make some costumes for us, uh, and I'm not full out in a bunny, so don't get too excited yet, but, but she wanted to make some, some costumes, and so for Halloween a couple years ago, we went dressed up like this, and so... Uh, she made us all like you know. Some ears were already pre-made. They made themselves ears. I had ears. She made a sword, made a made a shield that holding the green ember book, and we walked around uh, Harmony Grove like this, wearing a costume, because I'm not really a bunny with a sword. I'm not really in that story. But the truth of the matter is, is that when it comes to spiritual warfare, we are in that story. We are in a story where there are battles around us that we cannot see. We are in a story when around us we, see, we don't see all that there is to be seen. We're in a story where we need to be firm with the belt of truth, having girded our loins. Because, friends, shield and sword is not a costume that we wear. It is part of the uniform that we as people who follow Jesus, as soldiers who follow Jesus, need to put on each and every day. A costume is when you dress up pretending to be something. A uniform is when you dress up because that's who you are. We need to gird our loins. We need to buckle the belt of truth around our life. Not if, but when the battles come. So deception has no way in us so we could stand firm. And in so doing, be able to stand up and speak the truth in love to those around us. Heavenly Father, I thank you for each person who's part of our service today, whether they're live in person, live online, watching, or listening later. Lord, I know that as we talk about truth, we talk about some of these topics, they can be difficult for some of us. We can navigate and wrestle with, well, do we believe the Bible is true? And, And some of us have those questions, but Lord, we know. For those of us who know your word is true, we ought to live by it. And for those who are still wrestling with that, Lord, may you reveal the reality of it. Lord, may we reveal or may we experience the fact that there needs to be an objective standard because we can't just walk around the world on our own time or with our own truth. But instead, we need to go to the source of that truth, which is you, Jesus. So, Father, we thank you for this time, and I pray that... Holy Spirit, you would go before, that you would work on each and every one of us to meet each and every one of us where we need to experience you this morning in light of what we've heard. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.
0: Thank you for listening to the podcast. We want to be a church where people are changed by God to change the world. If you want to partner with us in this way, you can start by doing these two things. The first, if you haven't subscribed to this podcast, you can do that by hitting the subscribe button wherever you're listening, so you can stay connected with us and we can broaden our reach. And the second, and this might be the most important thing you do, share this message with someone you know. And as always, remember, you are prayed for, cared for, and loved. See you next time.